Um, that's the bell. We, we got two minutes, so we'll go ahead and take them. We've got a handout. Um, we're going to be using that as our guide. We're doing a new class thing. We're going to see how this goes. We don't know yet. We'll find out. Go ahead and turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 1, though. Friday night, I mailed out the questions or emailed out the questions to everybody for review. I'm not going to always send you 10 questions, I promise. Now, there was one email that I couldn't read that didn't get the question. So if you didn't get them and you said you were the second person that wrote your email right after the shell, I couldn't read it. So I sent what I thought it was and it came back. So sorry. And I'll get it from you again. That's all right. But hopefully the questions primed your font for what we're going to talk about today. The purpose of the questions is not the case that I'm going to ask the second question today. There will be some of that. But we'll be kind of familiar and conversant with what's going on in Revelation if we study those questions. So last week we covered uh, background and did some of that. And so let's go ahead and I'll kind of just fast forward to where we were before. Turn it on first. So my background from book Revelation, John did several times when was the book of Revelation written. We settled on the date in the 90s around the reign of the Emperor Vespasian. He reigned from 81 to 96 AD. He prompted, or he was one of the first. Nero and some others got it started, but Vespasian was the one who started this idea of emperor worship, which really is the background to the book of Revelation. Christians being pressured to worship the emperor, not worship the emperor, of course. Christians have to worship Jesus Christ and choose to do that. So that's the time period. John's purpose in writing, those are the passages that tell us that the things John's writing about, and we'll say more about this today, John says continuously that the things that I'm writing about are going to come to pass soon. And what does that mean? I mean, how soon is that? Did we drop off at chapter 20 and through 22? Is that end times? What is that all about? But John says his purpose in writing is because the things he's talking about will happen soon. Christians are suffering, and this is a word of exhortation and encouragement for them to keep going. And here's where we left off. What are some of the major things developed in the book of Revelation? So in the book, here are some of the major ideas that cycle back and forth. And I'm just going to mention some of these and we're going to dive right into chapter one. The first one is numbers. So I'm just going to read these off. This is from a Greek background as far as like Greek mythology. Some of this may overlap with Jewish people's thinking in the first century in the book of Revelation. But here's what they thought the numbers meant. Number one was a number that meant good. It meant indivisibility. You can't get any lower than one, any better than one. You can't do anything with it. Number two was evil. Number three was a limited plurality. Number four was visible creation. Just think about it. You've got the four elements, the four winds, the four directions, north, south, east, west. Number six was one short of perfection, of course. Number seven was completeness, seven days in a week, seven planets, at least in their mind back then. And then number 10 was both the number of completion and it was thought to be holy. And then number 12 for God's people was um, God's elect, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. Throughout the book of Revelation, numbers mean a lot. Now, whether all the time the numbers appear, they mean these things, we'll see as we go on. But one of the key themes are numbers. The second theme is kingdom. This idea of a kingdom and Jesus reigning over his kingdom. John's going to mention that in chapter 1 and verse 9. And the kingdom of Jesus is important throughout the book. The kingdom of God. By the way, what is the kingdom of God when you hear that phrase? The kingdom of God. What is that? The church? Show of hands for church. We're good with church. Okay, good. The kingdom of God is the church, but the church is a manifestation of God's kingdom. What I mean is the kingdom of God means God's in charge. It's the reign of God. How does God reign and rule in this world, in the church? But the kingdom of God is about God's reign and rule, period. And so sometimes we shortcut that and say the kingdom of God is the church. Yes and no. The kingdom of God is a part of the reign of God. It means that God's in control in the church. 
But there's a kingdom of God in heaven and on earth. And on earth, the kingdom or the rule of God is seen in the church. What that means is the world's out of control since Genesis chapter 3. But the church is the place where it looks like God is still in charge based on the way we live. God reigns or God rules in the church, hence God's kingdom. And so throughout the book of Revelation, John's going to say, hey, there's the kingdom of the Romans, but you're in the kingdom of God. Another key theme in the book is heaven, this idea of upward. John's going to talk about two realms throughout the book, earth. And the Christians are on earth, but that's where their adversary enemy is. But then John's going to talk a lot about what's going on in heaven. In heaven, he'll talk about Jesus reigning and all the blessings that are there. And Christians desire to focus their attentions on what's going on above them. Throughout the book of Revelation, earth stands for opposition to God. And heaven stands for where God reigns and where God rules. And John's going to play this out. In fact, there may be an exception to this, but just about every time Christians are mentioned in the book of Revelation, they're always seen as martyrs. That is, that they have died for their faith. And that they're going to go to heaven or they're already there as a result of that. There's a lot of talk about angels. What do angels do? Minister. Minister. Hebrews 1.14. They're ministering spirits sent forth to serve those of us who are heirs of salvation. A lot of talk in the book of Revelation about angels. Sometimes it means angelic beings. But not always. Maybe not. Depending on what we do with Revelation chapter 1 verse 19 and 20. It can just mean a messenger. And so angels are a big deal. In Revelation, and then there's a lot of talk about death in the book of Revelation. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from now on, Revelation 14, 13. They rest from their labors and their works follow them. A lot of talk about books in Revelation. Are your names written in the book of life? And John's going to eat and devour a book, and there'll be two witnesses in Revelation chapter 10. And one's going to open a book, one foot on the land, one foot on the sea. And then, of course, here's the last one. There's a lot of talk about life in the book of Revelation. Life and death. One of John's favorite words. In his gospel, in 1 John, his first epistle, outside of the gospel, and in the book of Revelation, a lot of talk about a lot of talk about life. Based on the way that's done, they won't have the backside. She knows more than me. All right. Let's go to Revelation chapter one. Revelation chapter one. Here's John's heavenly vision. And let's go ahead and read the first three verses. Now, this room is kind of big. I'm going to read the first three, but I won't read them all. Revelation 1, 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. All right, so John starts out with the prologue by telling us what's going on. So what do we find out in the first book, and first, first verse, excuse me, about the book of Revelation? How does John tell us the revelation that he received came about? What was the process? Walk me through the process. Starting in verse 1. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there may be some variation on what to do that people say, well, is this the revelation from Jesus? Like, did Jesus give John the revelation? Yes. Is the book of Revelation a revelation about Jesus Christ? Yes. The answer is both. It's a revelation from Jesus, but it's also a revelation about Jesus. And so as you read the book of Revelation, and as I read it, it tells us things about us as Christians and our lot and about people in the first century. But this is a book primarily about who? Everybody. About who? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, that's right. So it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. How did John receive it? What's the process in chapter 1 and verse 1? Somebody start off with the first one. It came from whom first? God. Okay, so first we've got God. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ from God 
to show to his servants things which must soon take place. And then it says, he, verse 2, he bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So what was the process of how the revelation was delivered? From God to who next? To Thank you, Jesus. Servants were confused. Yes? All right. From God, who was next? Who's next in line? Jesus. Jesus. That's right. It's Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. That him is Jesus, right? So it's from God to Jesus, and then to who? Then to the angel, and then to John. Just like that. Right? From God to Jesus to an angel to John. That's how the process went. Now, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all scripture is God-breathed. It's given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for various purposes. Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. When the Bible says that it's God-breathed, it means it's a product of God. And so we know that God originates the word of God. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says that prophets were carried along as they were born along by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't their own will. A lot of times we don't know how that happened. We know it wasn't manual dictation where God says, say I, and then John writes I, and this person me. But we don't always know the whole process. But in Revelation, we do, at least a part of the process, which is interesting. John says, God had the revelation, gave it to Jesus, Jesus to an angel, to John, which isn't unique. In the Old Testament, we're told that the law was given to Moses by the disposition of angels. That's what Stephen says in Acts chapter 7. You receive the law by the disposition of angels, and you haven't kept it. So God often would use angels to deliver the word. And here's what we see him doing with John. Okay, so based on the first three verses, what do you know about the book of Revelation? What kind of book is it based on what we see in the first three verses? What are some things that stand out to you about the book? Just yell out anything you find. It's a book of prophecy. Okay, yeah. What else? It's going to be soon. It's a book of symbolism. Yeah, he sent and signified it, it says in verse 1. Some translations have, like the ESV here has, he made it known. So there's symbolism. What else? It's a testimony. We'll talk more about testimony in a minute and what that means. What else? There's a blessing attached. Here's some of the things we know about the book of Revelation um, based on what we find here. What kind of book of Revelation? What kind of book is Revelation? Here's number one, and this is probably on your handout. It's a divine book. It's from God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We talked about that. All three members of the Godhead will play a role throughout the book of Revelation. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The book of Revelation is a divine book. Number two, it's a book that God had written for his people. The book of Revelation is for the people of God. Um, don't think to yourself, and we'll see this in chapter 1 and verse 4 when he says it's written to the churches. This is not a book for academic eggheads, okay? This isn't for, like, university professors or for some specialist to tell you about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation was written to the church. It's for the people of God. God gave it to John for this purpose, to show his people things that were going to take place soon. It's a Christ-centered book. It's Christ-centered. What does that mean, Christ-centered? Somebody help me out with that. What does that mean? It's about who? Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Which books of the Bible, trick question, which books of the Bible are about Jesus? All of them. How do you know that? He what, Andrew? He's told us. That's what you said? He told us? Yeah, that's right. So when Jesus was talking to Jews in John chapter 5 and verse 39 and 40, he talked about the Old Testament. He said, 
you search the scriptures, you think you have eternal life in them, and those scriptures testify about me. Luke 24, verse 44, he says, everything in the law, the prophets, and the psalms written about me must be accomplished and fulfilled. Old Testament is about Jesus. The New Testament is a no-brainer. That's about Jesus. But especially the book of Revelation. I mean, Philemon's about Jesus, okay? But Philemon is a book that Paul wrote to a man named Philemon about his slave Onesimus. And based on Jesus and the spirit of Christ, how do you work that out? Still about Jesus. But the book of Revelation is especially Christ-centered because John leads off in the first verse by saying it's a revelation from Jesus Christ. It is also a book about things that were shortly to take place. Kevin talked about that. And it's about things that God wanted his servants to know. So that's the kind of book Revelation is. Now, somebody mentioned the mystery. Look at verse 2. John says, John is this servant in verse 1. And the, the revelation was given to him. And John bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, this word mystery plays a big part in the book of Revelation. Um, the noun appears nine times for mystery and the verb appears four times. I'll give you those. You're going to find mystery or something like that in chapter one and verse two, in chapter one and verse nine, in chapter six and verse nine, chapter 11 and verse seven, chapter 12 and verse 11, 12, 17, 19, 10, and 20 and verse four. You're going to find that over, your version may have testify or something along those lines, the mystery. And then the verb form appears four times, chapter one, verse two. Chapter 22 and verse 16, 22, 18, and 22, 20. So John says he's here to bear witness. That's one form of the word. Bear witness to the word of God and then to the testimony of Jesus Christ. What is the testimony? This was on your little questions, your homework that I sent you. What is the testimony of Jesus Christ? What is that? What do you think that means when it says to bear witness to the testimony of Jesus Christ? What is that all about? Okay, Ms. Kim, God, John can testify for Jesus because he saw Jesus. Okay, he's a witness. So John's able to bear witness or testify. That's good. He was an eyewitness, and he's going to say some things about that. Why would that be important to people that are suffering? John says, this is my testimony about Jesus. He saw Jesus, and he was an eyewitness. Why would that count for them? Somebody that can relate to it and somebody's word that they can what? trust. You can bank on this. But that's not all of it, though. John is an eyewitness, and he testified, but those other references I gave you, chapter 12 and others, say all of the Christians. Revelation 12, 11 says they overcame him by the word of their testimony, because they loved not their lives unto death, and because they trusted in the blood of the Lamb. That's how they overcome the dragon in Revelation 12. Now, those folks were not eyewitnesses, so what's their testimony? What does it mean that Christians have a testimony? Then John's an eyewitness. He's telling you what he saw. What does the New Testament mean when it says their testimony about Jesus Christ? What does that mean? Their hope? Okay. Their understanding? Their accounting of what? Their personal experience. Personal experience about, about Jesus. Yeah, the testimony that Christians have is their personal relationship about Jesus. Here's the technical definition. It means confirmation or attestation on the basis of personal knowledge or belief. So Christians at this time were receiving a lot of false information. Caesar is Lord. Worship mission. They said, no, we believe in the testimony of Jesus Christ. What's that testimony? Jesus is Lord. Now, if somebody were to ask you, what is your testimony about Jesus Christ? Or what are the things about Jesus that we have to believe? We can't give up these things. What would you say? 
What would you be willing to die for? Because that's what happened to these folks. They were willing to give their lives for their testimony about Jesus Christ. What would make your list? What would you write up? Okay, here is my testimony about Jesus Christ. What would you have on the list? What would you say? He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Okay, he is. Not like God Jr., though. We don't mean Son of God like that, right? Like when we say Son of God, what does that mean? He's God in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. Okay, that's that's at the top of the list. Can't compromise that. That's our testimony about Jesus. What else? He died for our forgiveness. He died for our forgiveness. For our forgiveness of our sins. Resurrection. The, the resurrection. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 15 seems to be like an early creed that Christians were already embedded in their minds. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, Paul says, I'm delivering you what I received early on, first of all. That Jesus died for our sins, and he was buried, and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he was seen of above 500 brethren. James, Peter, last of all, me, is an apostle born out of due time. Paul says, here's some of the facts. You can't compromise on these. Anything else you'd be willing to die for about Jesus Christ? He's the Son of God. He came in the flesh. He died for our sins. He rose the third day. What else is in that testimony about Jesus? What else would you say? Um, Neil? King of kings and lord of lords. King of kings and lord of lords. That's important. King of kings. What does that mean? When the Bible says king of kings, what is that supposed to communicate? Overall. Overall. That means if you put all the kings who've ever existed in a room, they'd all bow before him. You put all the lords, lowercase l's, in a room, they'd all bow before him. I've said this before, I don't know if it's true or can be verified. After people die, legends come up about them. They say Queen Elizabeth, before she died, said, I hope Jesus comes back in my lifetime so that when he does, I can lay my crown down at his feet. Well, she will. All kings will. Revelation 19, 16, and queens. He's king of kings and lord of lords. That meant not only will we not say Caesar is lord, Jesus is Lord above him, above Domitian, above Nero, and every other that has ever lived. Anything else on our list? Our testimony. We would die for these things. Anything else? He created everything. Jesus created everything. He's just as much God as the Father. So John says, hey, here's the testimony about Jesus. This idea is important. Go to Revelation 22. This is why this matters, this idea of testimony. You can't just say anything you want about God. Well, God told me this, I think it's right. The testimony, what we say about God has to be accurate. This is true throughout the Bible. Revelation 22, let's get somebody to read nice and loud, eight, verse 18 and 19. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. Robert, you got this, thanks. I want everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which is described in this book. Okay, so you've been hearing that a long time. That's true about the whole Bible. It's in Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2 at the beginning of the Bible, Proverbs 35 and 6 in the middle of the Bible, and Revelation 22, 18 and 19. That's true about every book of the Bible, but especially this one. The irony is, this is the book where people add most. John says, don't add anything. People are like, well, I'm going to tell you this. This is about this person in this scene, and I'll take this part out. John says, my testimony is from Jesus. I've got the words from him. I saw the vision myself, and don't let anybody else add to it. All right? So it's important. The testimony, or the way witness is used here, John says he bore witness in verse 2. It's used throughout Revelation as the Christian proclamation of knowledge about Jesus. It's saying, if you were to put these Christians on the stand in the court of law, they'd raise their right hand and affirm the truth that John's going to lay out for us in 22 chapters. All right, so that's our testimony. Now verse 3. We're going to pick up a little speed. Look at verse 3. 
Blessed is the one who does what? What does your translation have? Old King James has what? Revelation 1 3. Blessed is the one that reads the words of this prophecy. Newer translations go to read aloud, and that's right. That's the better way to render this word. It means to read aloud. It appears throughout the New Testament in several places. It appears in Luke 4 and verse 16. Jesus stood up in the temple to read Isaiah 61 1 and 2. In the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts 8.28, which, by the way, people in the ancient world couldn't normally, you normally didn't hear people reading silently. It was kind of a shock that anybody could read internally. Most people that could read, there were very few, doesn't mean that they were stupid. We kind of say that people in the ancient world were illiterate. It was a different type of culture. There are people I know today that didn't graduate from high school, and they're smarter than people with alphabet soup behind their name, right, with credentials. It doesn't mean that. It just means in their culture, reading and studying and that sort, it was a special skill designed for certain people. But there were people that were trained to read aloud. So John would write this epistle, it'd be delivered to somebody, that somebody would come before a gathering like this one and read it aloud. We have a scripture reading, but they would read probably the entire book in one sitting and that person would expound on the letter and teach things that the letter communicates to them. And John's saying, blessed is the person that reads aloud. The eunuch was reading aloud. Colossians 4.16 says, Take this epistle and read it. Ephesians 3 and verse 4 says, When you read these words, you'll understand my knowledge and the mystery. A lot of times when the New Testament is talking about reading the Bible, it's great that you and I have a personal copy. But most times when the New Testament is talking about reading the Bible, it's talking about something that happened in a congregational setting where these letters were read, taught, and preached on. And John's saying, Blessed is the person that reads this letter aloud. The person that's going to be the scripture reader and, but what else does verse 3 say? It doesn't just say the blessings for the reader. What else do you have to do to receive the blessing? Hear it and, and keep it. Thank you. Blessed is the one that reads it aloud. And we read through the book of Revelation. We won't receive the blessing just for doing that. There's more to it. We also have to read this book and then keep it. All right, so John adds those things on. Blessed is the one that reads. There are seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Seven, number of completion. <laughs> Blessed are, you're going to find seven of these. And so this is the first one. And there's Revelation 14, 13. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Blessed are those that are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And John has these seven, hey, you're blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Last quarter, I taught the high school class, and we spent some of our time walking through the Sermon on the Mount. But you know, the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. What does it mean to be blessed? What do you think about it? I know people use that phrase all the time today, but what do you think it means biblically? And it means probably more than one thing, so there's no one silver bullet. What does it mean to be blessed? Russell? Have something you don't be given something you don't deserve. Okay, be given something you don't deserve. That's, somebody gives you something you don't deserve it. Um, I don't deserve a $100 bill, so if anybody wants to bless me. Yeah, you can say I'm blessed. Okay, what else? Happy. Happy, it does mean happy. What else? God approved. It's kind of a way, and we don't want to cheapen this, but it's like, congratulations. You're the fortunate one. You're a person God looks on and smiles. John says, if you read these words and keep them, you're going to be blessed. Now, here's a problem. If you skip the book of Revelation, you're going to miss a what? Blessing. If you study the book of Revelation and then don't do what it says, you're going to miss what? Got to read and keep. Read and keep. But James says, be doers of the word and not what? You know why James would say that? Because of what we just talked about. People would get up and read the word of God. And people had the Bible read in their language. And Jewish people thought, Psalm 147, 19, and 20, God didn't communicate with any other nation like he did with us. We've got the oracles of God. We hear it. We're special. And James is saying, wait a minute. 
just because you hear the Bible, that doesn't mean anything. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Just because you read the Bible, just because you come to church a lot, hey, you guys are being persecuted. I'm going to give you the testimony about Jesus Christ, but you're only going to be blessed if you hear him. Okay, first century Christians, let's put ourselves in their world. They were going to come up and talk about us briefly. What do you think would have made it difficult for them to hear the word of God? Besides not having a PA system and probably a big group, what would have made it difficult for them to hear the word of God? Persecution. How does persecution make it hard for you to hear the word of God? You got to be quiet. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we don't really want people knowing this, right? Don't say anything to anybody. Um, persecution. What else makes it difficult for first century? We're not coming up to us just yet. What would have made it difficult for somebody in the first century to hear the word of God? Revelation one three. Delivering the message. What else? Access to scripture. Access. You got to have a copy. You got to have a copy. Access. What else? If the Bible is going to be read at the assembly, it's going to be hard for you to hear the word if you do what? You miss it, right? There is no, like, Palestinian first century YouTube channel or anything like that. It's like, if you miss the assembly, Hebrews 10, 25, you're going to miss your word of exhortation. Well, what's that all about? Encouragement from others? Yes, but you're not going to hear this. You wouldn't hear this. You wouldn't have a copy. The Bible was so expensive. There's a breakdown, and maybe I can bring this at some point, that shows about how much it costs in our money to produce one book of the Bible. And it would have been very expensive. If you don't have a copy, that's going to make it hard. What would make it hard for you to keep? In the first century, what would have made it hard for you to keep the word of prophecy that John gives you? Persecution. Persecution is going to be difficult. Now let's come up to us. What makes it difficult for us to hear the word? John says, blessed is the one that reads aloud the words of this prophecy and who keeps it, right? Who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear what is written. For the time is near. What makes it hard for us to hear the word? Practically, what makes it hard for you and me to hear the Bible? Hear this word prophecy and other words. The demands change. Yeah. The demand to change, you said? Okay. Distractions. Distractions? Priorities. Priorities? Yeah. What priorities? Like, what about priorities? Where are you placing your priorities? How you live your life? Okay, how we live our life. Anybody ever just tired? Like, it's kind of hard to hear the word because I'm, I'm tired, I'm busy, and then when it's time to hear the word of God, I'm I'm tired. Okay, what else? What about this one? Intellectual junk food. Like all week, we're fed intellectual junk food in our minds, and then we come here, and like the Bible may kind of be boring to me, right? What do we tell kids? You can't eat dessert now because it'll do what to your appetite? It'll spoil your appetite. If you eat that, you're not going to want real food. Sometimes, throughout the whole week, we fill ourselves up with junk food, and when it's time for a real meal, I mean real information that can change our lives, our intellectual appetite is just wrong. We didn't mean for it to happen, but it did. And now it's time to hear the word of God. And we're just not positioned to properly take it in. And we don't respond properly. Okay, what about keeping it? What makes it hard for us to keep it? Commitment. Commitment. So it's not all persecution. We say, well, if we were persecuted, it'd be difficult. You don't have to be persecuted. They were persecuted. They kept it. We're not physically persecuted in the same way. And yet we struggle. It's always going to be a struggle. Temptations are very attractive. Temptations are very attractive. That's what temptation is by definition. I left you some blanks there on purpose for you to write in your honor. This isn't about what everybody else says. You need to be honest about what makes it hard for you. Until you're honest about it, you can't address it. What makes it hard for you to hear it and keep it? This may be a part of it too. I know this already. The longer you're in the church, the more you read the Bible, scripture can kind of become like a rerun for you. Well, I've seen this one. Up, 
Luke 15, prodigal son. How many times have I read that? Genesis chapter 1, I mean, what is this? Kindergarten BBS? I know that. I know this one already. And we can kind of lull ourselves to sleep. And John's saying, you need to hear this word of prophecy, and you need to keep it. And the reason why at the end of verse 3 is the time is near. That was important for them. And that idea of the time being near says, hey, you've got to keep this, but it's also urgent. And that's why in chapter 2 and 3, Jesus is rebuking the churches, and he's saying, you better get your act together because I'm coming soon. All right, let's read 4 through 8. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our own sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom of priests who is God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God, who is and who was, who is to come, the Almighty. Okay, so this next section, John writes to the seven churches. You probably can't see this red dot, but here are the seven churches of Asia, and the letters in chapter 2 and 3 work in this direction. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Laodicea is the last one. So John tells you in Revelation 1 4, here are the churches that he's writing to. Now, on the churches, people have different ideas. There are seven churches. Some people say, possibility number one, John wrote to seven real churches in Asia. Possibility number two, these churches are kind of representative of all the churches throughout time. The number seven means completion in the book of Revelation. And I say to that, that's where symbolism gets stretched too far and gets a little crazy. John's writing to seven real churches. The descriptions of the congregations are so specific to their place and to their time that I don't think John's just speaking in generalities. Um, but the message to all of these churches is true for every church down throughout time who's going to be faithful to Jesus. And so we do need to sit up straight and listen to what John's going to tell us about his message to, to the churches. All right. So John says in verse 4 that, look at verse 4. John said, seven churches, grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And he says some things there. Grace and peace. That's how a lot of the New Testament letters start out. Um, why do Christians need grace and peace? Well, let me ask this. How does God give grace and peace to us today? John's going to tell us who it's from, but the question is, how does God give it? How does God give people grace and peace? Paul starts a lot of letters that way, grace and peace, mixing two Greeks, right? The Hebrew, peace, Greek, grace, Paul puts them together. God sends grace and peace to you. It's not just a way to open a letter and say, hey, how's it going? It really means something. How does God give grace and peace? Knowing things are going to be all right, no matter what. That's the result of grace and peace. Yeah, knowing things are going to be all right, no matter what. But how does God give it to you? Through through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through this, right? John said, hey, grace and peace in the name of faith is coming through. Part of it is through a letter like this one. You're going to receive the grace of God and peace in part when you read this letter and when you do what I just told you in verse 3. Hear it and keep it. God's got grace and peace. Through prayer. Through prayer. Yeah, there's a host of avenues for sure where God gives it. Through prayer, through the presence of the Spirit, through God's people. But especially through this letter, Christians are going to receive grace and peace. What's the last thing John says? The last verse in the Bible, Revelation 22, 21. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you always, forever. Amen. It came through this letter in part. Now, who is it from? Look at verse 4. Throughout this, I'm going to mention some Old Testament verses because John relies on the Old Testament a lot. 
And so you can write these down or whatever. We won't turn to all of them, but I'll just give them to you in reference. The first thing John says in verse 4 is, this grace and peace comes from him, him who is, who was, and who is to come. Question, who is that? God. That's a nice cheat answer. Yeah, God. Yeah. In all cases, you just ask anybody anything. What was Bible class about? Jesus? You can't go wrong with that. <laughs> My kids come home. What was your class about? Jesus? I'm like, well, can't argue. Yeah, God. But specifically, God the Father, who is, who was, and who is to come. It's an echo of Exodus 3.14. Moses at the burning bush. Who will I say sent me? I am sent you. I am that I am. That's who he is and who was and who is to come. It's a reference to God the Father. Okay, now next John says grace and peace comes from the seven spirits before the throne. Who are those guys? Poor guy. Who is that? This was on your sheet, I think. I'd say it's the Holy Spirit. Bobby goes with Holy Spirit. Show of hands for Holy Spirit. I'm with Bobby, Holy Spirit. Isaiah 11 and verse 2, if you turn over there real quick. This is probably dealing with Isaiah 11 and verse 2, which some people call the perfection of the Spirit of Christ in this Messianic passage, Isaiah 11, 2. Let's get somebody to read that. As soon as you get there, just read Isaiah 11 and verse 2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. All right, let's count them. You ready? The spirit of the Lord, that's one. The spirit of wisdom, that's two. The spirit of understanding, that's three. The spirit of counsel is four, might is five, knowledge is six, and the fear of the Lord is seven. The completion of God's spirit and what he's able to do. The Holy Spirit of God. And throughout the book of Revelation, the Holy Spirit is involved. What the Spirit says to the churches, John's going to say a lot of times. And in chapter 4, verse 6, and 5, and verse 6, the Holy Spirit is present before the throne of God. So you've got God the Father, and we normally have God the Son and the Spirit, but John switches the order on us. We've got God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and then you have in verse 5... And from who else? Who's the last member of the Godhead mentioned here? Who? Jesus. And notice the descriptions about Jesus. He is the, the faithful witness. Is that there in verse 5? What does that mean, the faithful witness? It probably goes back to Jesus standing before Pilate. Are you a king then? John 18, 37. Paul says he gave the good confession. 1 Timothy 6, 16, a faithful witness. Remember, John has a testimony. Jesus gave the first faithful testimony. Who is Jesus Christ? What did he say he was? His testimony was first about himself on trial for his life. Are you the son of the blessed? Mark 14, 62, he says, I am. Okay, he's a faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead. That's Psalm 89, 27, which says David's seed is going to rise from the dead. He is the ruler of the prince of the kingdoms of the earth, and he's the one who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. What does all of this mean in verse 5? I mean, these are a lot of fancy titles and terms, but just put it, bring it home. What does all of this mean? Faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, so what? What does all of it mean? Help me out. Somebody who hasn't talked, remember the ground rules. No hijacking allowed, right? What does this mean, all of these titles? What do you think John's trying to say? He's landed on pretty thick here about who Jesus is. What is he saying? Our Savior. Our Savior, yes. Part of that, our Savior. But what is he trying to say about Jesus? Like, what is he telling you about Jesus? Jesus is what? Give me something. He is, who said that? Everything. He's Messiah. He's awesome. John's dipping into everything in his tool bag to say, this is who you serve. If you're being tempted to follow Domitian, a man who's going to be dirt and bones and maggot food when he dies, you're going to miss it. 
you've got the faithful witness. You've got the firstborn from the dead. You've got the prince of the rulers of the kingdoms of the earth, not just Rome, the whole world. That's who you serve. Don't sell out for anything else. John's saying, this is who you have. This is what you have. Jesus makes us a kingdom of priests to God. That's verse 6. So verse 5 says, hey, this is what Jesus did for you. Washed you from sins in his blood. But verse 6 says, this is what Jesus did to you. See, verse 5 is for you. At the end, Jesus frees us from our sins in his own blood. But verse 6, this is what he does to you. This goes back. Go back. We've got to look at this one. We just, we'll make time. All right. Exodus 19. Exodus 19. Question. In the Old Testament, real quick, everybody, what was the priestly tribe? What tribe did God use as the priest? You have to be from the tribe of? Levi. Levi. Yeah, think genes, right? Levi. Right. Now, somebody nice and loud, Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Read that. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Listen, it was God's desire in the Old Testament for the entire nation to be a priest. They failed. They flunked. They were fearful, in fact. And they told Moses, hey, you go up there and talk to him. He says, all right, you pull out Aaron. Exodus 19, 5 and 6 was always the goal. Israel failed. Peter kicks up on this language in 1 Peter 2, 5 through 9. He says, now it's your turn. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy people. It's from Exodus 19, 5 and 6. When John says, you're a kingdom of priests, he's saying, hey, this is your true identity. Now, why do you have to tell people this that are in Christ? They're suffering. They're being persecuted. John says, here's who God is. Here's who you are. Why does this matter? Why is John telling them this about themselves? Why would he mention this stuff? Why would John tell him, hey, you're, God's made you a kingdom of priests. You matter to God. You've been freed from your sins in his own blood. What is John trying to tell him about himself? Why do they need to know this? Give them hope. Give them hope. By reminding them what? Of who they are. Yeah, God chose them. You probably heard the illustration about Einstein being on the train before, right? Einstein's on the train. Guy comes up to Einstein. He's going to deliver a lecture. And he says, sir, I need your ticket if you're going to continue on this train. Einstein pats himself. He doesn't have the ticket. He says, sir, we can't go forward. And finally, Einstein's on the ground looking around. He says, okay, we know it's you, Albert Einstein. You don't have to worry about it. You're going to deliver a lecture at Princeton or Harvard. You'll be fine. Einstein keeps looking. The tenant says, listen, we told you you're fine. We know who you are. Einstein says, I'm not looking for the ticket for your sake. I know who I am. I just have no clue where I'm going. <laughs> and sometimes we might think, well, I know who I am. We've got no idea. <coughs> John says, hey, know what your spiritual address is in the end you're going to glory you're a kingdom of priests to god you matter to god you're different and don't let the world take that from you and so john says sometimes we need to be reminded of who we are why do you carry id why do you need an identification card what do you need that for, <laughs> for other people like you're not going to forgive your week, right i hope not if you do you're probably in worse shape off than an id can help right for other people but john says sometimes you need it for you because you forgive well, we're the church. Yeah, that's right. But we're more than that. The King James actually says we're kings and priests, doesn't it? Like we're kings. And, yeah, we are. We're, John saying, hey, you're meeting in these little backwoods places. You're being persecuted. You're being told to shut up and give up. You're royalty. You're not garbage just eking out of existence. He made you royal. He is, and so are you. All right, verse 7. John says Jesus is coming. Look at verse 7. Revelation 1, 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will what? See him when he comes. This is a quote from Zechariah 12 and verse 10. Now, here's the question. When is Jesus coming? Robert? Soon. Who goes with soon? Show of hands. Nice and don't get afraid. 
who goes with soon? When is Jesus coming? Soon, according to who? According to John. This passage has been used, I've used it this way, and I'm going to keep using it this way. This passage has been used to say when Jesus comes, every eye will see him and all that. I believe that's right. I believe we can quote that without any hesitation. But I don't believe John's talking about the second coming, the end of all time coming. He's talking about Jesus coming in judgment on the Romans. That's what he's saying. He will come soon. We know that's right because of a few passages. Look at Revelation 1 and verse 1. It says Jesus is coming soon. Revelation 1 and verse 3 says the time is near, but there's more. Go to Revelation 3. Go to Revelation chapter 3 and notice what Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia right there as he's getting near the end. What does he say? Revelation 3 and 11. Nice and loud. Anybody? Yeah, he says, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming soon. Go to Revelation 22 at the end. Revelation 22 and verse 7. And then we'll talk about why does John say it like that, though? It sounds like the end. Revelation 22, 7. Somebody read that who hasn't read it. 22, 7. And just go ahead and pick up 22, 20 as well. 22, 7 and 22, 20. Lord, coming soon. Oh, okay. Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy of this book. And then there's just some noise behind us. I'll read it for us so we can hear. Verse 20, Revelation 22, 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. John is not talking about when Jesus comes back at the end of time. Jesus is about to come in judgment on the Romans that are persecuting his people. And Jesus talks like this throughout the Bible when he talks about coming in judgment. If we had time, we'd look at Isaiah 19 and verse 1, but you can check that out later. God says, I'm coming soon in judgment on the Egyptians, and I'm coming with the clouds. In Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, Matthew 24, 30 and 31, he says... I'm coming with the clouds, and I'll come in judgment. It's apocalyptic language to say he's going to come and punish. Now, when Jesus comes for the final time to judge the whole world, will every eye see him? Of course. But that's not what John's talking about here. Why would he mention it? He pierced him. Who pierced Jesus? The Romans. He's talking about his judgment on the Romans, and he's coming, and he's going to deal with them in short order, and so the Christians can be encouraged based on that reality. All right, we got to finish chapter one today. All right, John writes in verse nine, he says he's our fellow brother in the tribulation and in the kingdom. I'll just say a quick word about this. In Revelation 1, 9, John says, I'm your brother in the tribulation and kingdom. And then he says, in the patient endurance, he says, for the patient endurance of those that are in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've heard of the health and wealth gospel before. Have you heard of that? Where people say, if you obey God, you're going to get what? You'll be rich. God's going to give you what you want. That's not true. But there is like a new version of the health and wealth gospel. And it kind of goes something like this. If you follow God, if you trust God, God's going to bring you out. In the end, you're going to get it all. God's going to bless you. You're going to be able to have this great testimony. God's going to, listen, I don't care how many cute mountains they put behind those quotes and how many ways they dress it up and make it look cute. Sometimes that's true, but not, you know, people quit Jesus Christ because of that kind of teaching and that reality. They say, well, I prayed and y'all said that God's going to bring me out. God didn't always bring you out here. Sometimes there's the patient endurance and we have to learn how to wait. Now, John's telling these Christians relief's coming soon, but he doesn't give them a calendar date. Sometimes relief doesn't come in this life. God doesn't show up at least how we think he should right now. And if we think that he should or that he will, we might just give up hope altogether. Well, he didn't come. 
What if he didn't come in the next like two to three years for these Christians? He's coming soon in the Rome on the Romans during the reign of their empire, but their empire lasted until 300 AD. What if you die before that happened? John says, I'm your brother in the patient endurance. You've got to stick. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what God, what kind of things the devil's trying to work over on you. But have patient endurance. And don't give up. Alright, John's in the spirit on the Lord's day. He's on the Isle of Patmos. We could say more about that, but we don't have time, so we don't skip this. Sorry. That's Patmos right there in the center of the GNC next to Asia Minor. Here is a place where the Greek Orthodox Church thinks John was housed in this place. And right above the entrance is this mosaic that's been painted. And that's John supposedly talking to a scribe named Prochorus from Acts chapter 6. It's church legend. We don't know if it's true. But that little hand in the corner right there is where they think God's given John the revelation. And this is something in Greek that says John is the theologian. So John's receiving this revelation. So if you go there to Patmos, they're going to tell you that's where John was. He was somewhere around there, but we don't know if that was it. Okay. So chapter 10, John's in the spirit on the Lord's day, which is the first day of the week. And John is receiving this revelation. Revelation 1.10 says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book, and then send it to the seven churches. And that's exactly what John does. Okay. We'll do 12 through 16, and then we'll quit for today. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. All right, John tells us what he hears and what he sees. Who does John see? Who does John see in this vision? One like the Son of Man, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus, I think this is interesting in verse 12. Look at verse 12. He saw one like the Son of Man, verse 13, in the midst of the lampstands. 120 is going to say the lampstands represent the what? The seven what? Churches. Jesus is standing in the midst of the church. That's amazing. You're suffering and Jesus is saying, I'm right here with you. I'm standing right in the middle of the church. Crazy things going on in congregations. Jesus is saying, I'm standing right there. There's going to be some liberal churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Some churches that are missing the mark. And Jesus is saying, I'm standing right in the midst. Some churches suffering. And Jesus is going to say, I'm right here. Jesus, sees Jesus doesn't need anybody to give him a report of what's going on in the church. He's right there. And if you're suffering, this would be encouraging to say, he's right there with you. He's standing right in my presence. And then John gives some descriptions about who Jesus is. And I told you in the questions or asked you to tell me what you think some of these things mean. What do you think is meant by the robe and the sash across his chest in verse number 13? What is that? High priest, yes, that's right. This goes back to Exodus 28 and verse 4. What about the white hair? Does that mean Jesus was old? No, right? Purity or wisdom? Yeah. Um, that's the last veil. But write down Daniel 10, 5 and 6. Much of what John says, he just copy and paste right from Daniel chapter 10, 5 and 6. This image of God being divine. The eyes like fire deal with God seeing and knowing all. And then we'll pick up the next the rest next time. I'm going to send the questions. I'll send the questions out on Friday again. But here's your homework. Read chapter 1 again and read chapter 2. 
and we'll deal with that next time. We'll finish out chapter one and get into the seven churches in chapter two. Thanks for your attention this morning. Appreciate it. Thank <laughs> you.